This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardian's beat reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Langs. Reporter and researcher for MLB.com as well. And we are finally back after a little bit of a hiatus for holidays and then our trip to Disney together. Um, I'm sure anyone who would follow us would know why we were there. We had a couple days to be able to be in the parks and see each other finally. And uh, of course also mix in a lovely half marathon in the middle of all of that but we're at least back here and i'm alive to tell the story about it so we're good absolutely we had so much fun down there and i know we were gone for a couple weeks so i figured we should start by recapping what you did which was amazing we've talked about this on this podcast but mandy bell had never run more than a mile before Last summer, when she, I think, called me and said she had this idea, I'd love to run a half marathon because you, I, love to run half marathons and have it be tied to raising money for ALS research. And uh, I was so excited. I think I was crying at the idea. I loved it so much. But at that point, before you signed up, you had never run more than a mile at once. And somehow we got to the point where we were standing there in Magic Kingdom at Disney World, watching you come (laughs) through around the five mile mark. And then we were there at the finish, watching you finish your first and only half marathon. For those of you who do not know running, all you need to know. Mandy's time was sub 11 minute miles, just below 11 minute miles, which is something people work for. That is something that I have friends who have been trying to get to times like that. And this rock star did that the first time she set out to do this. It was absolutely amazing. And perhaps the best part (laughs) was that the day culminated with an ice cream sundae called the kitchen sink, which <laughs> came in a literal bowl that looked like a sink. So Mandy did an amazing job and, by the way, <laughs> raised $102,000 for this research and me. We're going to fight about that separately. We're going to say right now it's for less research, but I don't even know how to process a number like that and so I mean just amazing all around and thank you so much I wish people could just see how many times I rolled my eyes during this because you're too much in the way that you just explained all of that um yes that is all true I really had never run at all before so I will agree to that and uh I will say that I found a 
a schedule online that you could follow to tra- a training program. And I found the one that is the longest, slowest way to ramp yourself up to 13 miles uh, to the point that I started at running a half mile. And um, even that was not fun at that point. So it was very funny to get to the point at 13 where I'm like, oh, there's only five miles left in this race. And at one point I was dying through a half mile. So yes, it was it was a good time. It was fun to be able to have you there obviously to be able to see you in magic kingdom that was that was so cool it was so much fun and like you said the absolute highlight of it all i mean yeah running it cool raising money cool but that kitchen sink man (laughs) let me tell (laughs) you if anyone has seen it on twitter i posted a picture of it uh it would have been the day of the race on january 7th if you want to scroll back and see it i don't tweet much in the off season so it shouldn't take you much time um I think it was three scoops of chocolate ice cream, three scoops of cookies and cream, two of vanilla, a whole can of whipped cream, which they emphasize whenever they yell it. (laughs) And Oreos, uh, chocolate shavings, Snickers, um, brownies, literally like every topping that you could imagine. Um, My husband and I took it on. I think it's meant for like four to six people. And of course, two of us were ready to take it on. Um, we didn't defeat it. We didn't defeat it. That that was uh, that was a tough pill to swallow for me. But we did a good job. And that was the highlight, definitely, of the weekend, of course. So uh, yeah, no, it was a great time. And I cannot thank everyone enough who did donate. Um, I was on I was at the airport on my way to the uh, on the way to Orlando whenever I got a notification from GoFundMe saying, congrats on hitting your goal. And at that point, I had known that we were at 93,000. And I was thinking, is this on a glitch of some sort? Because I knew the goal was 100,000. And I knew that that was an insane goal. And I was hoping to hit it before the race. But at that point, it was under 48 hours until the race. I'm thinking, there's no way we're going to get there. And right after I got that notification, I got another one that said that we had a donation of $10,000, which we, I mean, both of us, jaws on the floor for that. And that was just unbelievable. And we even had a couple trickle in after the race. So people have been unbelievable. It's a refreshing reminder of that social media can be good because <laughs> a lot of the times we don't see that. Um, it's a lot of places for people to just vent and be angry and uh not have to have a face to a name and be able to say whatever they want to say and this was a wonderful reminder that the world is actually a good place even though we try to not see that and gosh i cannot say enough so yes it was fun i'm ready to not ever think about running that again (laughs) and at that point we can just turn the page on it because i am done with running i will start my lifelong streak of never running again and we're good to go. So uh, let's get into baseball because obviously uh, now that the run's over, I can think about baseball again. And somehow we're just about, what, a month from the week that pitchers and catchers are reporting, which seems ridiculous to think that we're already to this point. Um, and I know you've been a big part. Like as soon as we get back from Disney, you had to go in and start recording everything for your top 10 list at the network, which... Um, if anyone hasn't seen those, they've been outstanding. They've been great as they are every single year. And we've already gone through three positions so far and they'll continue to air 
Um, so I thought, I mean, we both thought it would be a good idea to start going over these lists of going through the top 10 players at each position. For sure. So first of all, I'll hype the shows, but Brian Kenny and MLB Network, everyone does a really great job. So as you mentioned, three of ours so far, we'll talk through those lists. Those are relievers, right fielders, and center fielders. And then tonight, uh, Tuesday, January 17th, left fielders will be airing all of these at 8 p.m. on MLB Network, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Then tomorrow, on uh, Wednesday the 18th, we'll have first baseman. And the next day, we will have third baseman. And then we come back next week on the 25th. We'll have second baseman, the 26th will have shortstops. And then the week after that, on the first, we'll have starting pitchers. And on the second, we'll have catchers. So I figure right now we can talk through what we've done so far. And we'll talk about left fielders. And then we'll leave the rest to talk about over the next few weeks as these kind of roll out. So we can sort of start with my list. And now my lists are not the official list. The way that it works is I'm on the Saber uh, panel with Brian Kenny, Vince Gennaro, and Mike Petriello, who is, of course, very familiar to anyone listening to this podcast feed. So what we do is we put sort of a statistical bent on the idea of the list. So the overall uh, end-all, be-all list is the Shredder, which is a MLB network-created sort of calculation. I don't even know exactly how it works, but the shredder considers, I believe, the last two years and the overall career for each player and puts together the top 10 list. And then the the three of us and Brian Kenny put together our own personal list. We don't see the shredder beforehand. We don't talk to each other about it beforehand. And then we go on TV and we talk about them and I feel silly because I undervalue or overvalue someone. So it's a lot of fun. So we'll start with our relief pitchers. I had Edwin Diaz, number one, Emmanuel Classe, number two, then Ryan Healthley, Andre Munoz, Devin Williams, Brian Abreu, Camilo Duvall, Liam Hendricks. I made this before he announced his diagnosis, but I wanted to keep him on the list. And then Evan Phillips and Felix Batista. Uh, you mentioned before he had, he came out with his diagnosis. One, just seeing his name on that, just you feel the immediate gut punch just because of his diagnosis. I was able to see firsthand what it's like for a player to go through something like this when Carlos Carrasco had uh, announced his leukemia diagnosis in 2019. So to see the baseball world backing him in general is just special again. And to have anyone have to go through this, especially publicly, is so difficult. And so, yeah, that's going to be interesting to continue to follow. And, And that was awful to hear. So I was glad to see his name still on the list at this point, because it's just like, you know what he does, you know how great he's been in the past. And so to have real life have to get into what's supposed to be a game just it just sucks for any lack of a better phrase. But for the top two there, I know it's it's hard to 
decipher anything between these two of Edwin Diaz and Emmanuel Classe because they're both so good. They both have ridiculous numbers. They both have the same amount of dominance. It seems like like you look through all of this stuff. I would take either of them on my team. Like I, I don't. It's hard to argue that one is dramatically better than the other because they're not. They're so so similar. Um, my biggest thing with that is. Um, we talk so much about inning workloads for starters and how important that is and how much do you weigh that in whenever you're looking at a Cy Young. Like maybe someone has a little bit of a higher ERA, but they ate up 220 innings and the guy with the lowest ERA and the better numbers and all these metrics um, only had 180. And so it's like, well, do you look at the workhorse? I also think that it's something to look at with Class A, and not just because I, I see him every day to understand just the dominance that he has and the impact that he has for the Guardians, but the fact that he had the most appearances in baseball, to have 77 appearances last year, to have by far the most uh, number of saves last year with 42, I think that in my head would just weigh so heavily to have him be at that top of that list because... I watched how much Francona used and overused him because they needed him. I mean, this team had so many one run run. Can I speak today? One run wins, comeback wins. Um, everything was a grind. Everything that they won was a grind. And so the importance of Class A to be nearly perfect was tremendously high and that's why they were like okay you've pitched the last two days so what you can go out for a third in a row we need you um so that value would be so high in my head which may bump it up but you look at those numbers between Diaz and and class a and they're so similar and Diaz outweighs him in, in a handful of categories so I can see how it goes back and forth, but that might be why Class A at this point of the maturity that he's had in learning how to take the ball as frequently as possible um, and get up to 72 innings or whatever he had. I, th- I think that was maybe the most impressive part of all of this. This was, as you're referring to, a really easy one too. For me, there was a big difference between one and two. But even still, it was the two of them and then everybody else. And I like the way you worded it with Jose. Not about saves, but about volume. Because I think one thing that fans often get mad about with these lists, and of course these lists exist in part for fans to get mad and engaged, and it's great. (laughs) But... One thing that people often point out with relievers is, oh, Jordan Romano at all of these saves, why don't you have him? So-and-so at all of these saves, why don't you have him? And for me, looking at a reliever and figuring out what made him the best isn't just about accumulating saves. Saves are a better metric than wins for a pitcher. But you could be a really good pitcher, like Munoz, for instance, and not really pitch in the ninth inning. But I like the way that you sort of distinguish that from the idea of just getting used a lot. Class A sort of at both. He was used a lot, and it happened to be in the ninth in those save situations. But the argument for him isn't saves, it's uh, the volume of work and what he did in those innings. For sure. And 
it just so happened to be that they finally got the lead in the ninth. Um, whether he's a closer or not, it seemed like that was finally the time that Cleveland would actually gain the first lead of the game or whatever it might have been. And so it's like, all right, now Class A and the best pitcher needs to be in in the ninth. So it was a little different than just saving the best pitcher for the last inning, regardless of the situation. It just worked out that way a lot for them. So, um, but like you said, it's an easy one too. But I know the next list that you had was right fielders, which that seemed like it had a clear number one as well. High fly ball, deep left. Barry goes, staring into history. He's done it. He has done it. 62. Aaron Judge is the American League single. He did. That was Aaron Judge. And this is a position that has gone through some different changes over the last few years. Juan Soto had been at this position for the last two years, but now he is, for the purposes of this, back in left field. And his teammate, Fernando Tatis Jr., at least for the purposes of this, was here. So when I read through the list, if you hear him, you're like, wait, he's a shortstop. Well, they got Xander Bogart, and this was where we were asked to rank him. So I've judged number one. I've Bryce Harper number two, though, as I talked about on the show, maybe, you know, the idea of these lists is right now. So who are you expecting to have the best season moving forward? Of course, Bryce Harper is going to miss some time this year, recovering from his injury. So it may not have been the best choice to put him number two, but I really believe in the player. That's why I had him there. Mookie Betts at three, Kyle Tucker at four, uh, followed by Ron Acuna Jr., who I fully expect to be fully back to his Ron Acuna Jr. self this year. And I fully expect him to be higher than fifth next year, but I just need to see him be back and do that first. Then Fernando Tatis Jr., Sterling Marte, George Springer, and Tasker Hernandez with Hunter Renfro last. I mean, I really don't have much to add to this because I, I feel like I agree with most of it. The, it. the thing with me, like you sort of hit on with Harper, it's just how much will his injury impact him this year? How much will it impact him to come back and... I, what did they say? They were hoping by the All-Star break. I think we saw Todd Zalecki say that he his prediction was June um, in one of his uh, newsletters. And so it's just how much does that, does that hurt him? How much does that set him back? How much will that make him feel like he needs to play catch-up? Does that cause a domino effect of pressing and trying to make an impact in a shortened window? Um, or is it the Bryce Harper that we watched in the postseason that was just ridiculous in any moment um, to the point that I, I know I've told this story and I said that I was watching um, a game last October and I'm talking on the phone with my parents and I was like, oh, you might want to turn this game on because I'm pretty sure Harper's about to hit the home run. And they were, my dad said, no, they're not. Two balls, two strikes to Bryce Harper. Suarez delivers. Swing and a drive. Left field. It's deep. It's going. Yes! And it is gone. Yes! yes. It is Bedlam at the bank as Bryce and Harper. My TV, as I can hear in the background on the phone call, is about mm, eight seconds faster than my parents' stream. 
So I was not able to react when I saw it and I did not want to blow anything. So I just waited for my dad to give it the, okay, you were right. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> he just had this aura about him. And I, he was so important to that team and that run. I think that there's some question marks with him. So it, it might be difficult to have him as ranked as high as that. But I think he sort of earned that with the way that he was last year. So then we'll move to center field, which is led again by Mike Trout. And every year we kind of talk about how many more years does Mike Trout have being number one here. My answer is last year he became one of four guys to at least 40 homers playing fewer than 120 games in a season. So not until he proves otherwise. I mean, it's insane. So we have Mike Trout, number one. I have Julio Rodriguez, number two. I have Byron Buxton, three. Brandon Nimmo, four. Michael Harris, the second. Brian Reynolds, Luis Robert, Cedric Mullins, Dylan Carlson, and Chaz McCormick. So, you know, Michael Harris, the second, and Julio Rodriguez were rookies of the year. They were so dynamic. They're both center fielders. We hadn't had that in a while. They're also both really young, so I really love where this position is at. And one of my favorite stats, which relates to Trout, Julio, and Buxton, is guys who are in the 95th percentile or better in both hard hit rate and sprint speed. There were three guys to do that last year, and it was the three of them. So this is the archetype of an athletic, ideal center fielder. Yeah, I mean, Mike Trout, like you said, he earns it. It's not like it's just this guy who's been grandfathered in. It's not this guy who was the the face of baseball at one point, so we just need to keep him going until he retires. Every year he proves that he needs to be the top of this type of list and that he needs to continue to be one of the biggest stars in baseball because he is, and it doesn't matter how long he's been in the league. Um I think it's it's really enjoyable to see so many rookies be such impactful players. It's fun to see rookies on these types of lists because it shows that the base, baseball's in good hands and that we aren't losing out on as these guys start to to age. I know Aaron Judge isn't old, but you start to think of like how long these guys have now been in the league. The baton just keeps getting handed off. My biggest thing is Byron Buxton, just because um, covering the Central, I, I see the Twins so much, and it seems like every time you visit there, Buxton's on the IL, and that's just, it has to get so frustrating for him, because year after year, he's having some sort of injury. Um, you look at his player transaction page, it's just so aggravating to look at that because you have this player that in every small sample size we get of him, he looks exceptional and he looks like he's the exciting player that deserves to be on this type of a list, but he never gets enough time to prove that he should be at the top of these lists. And um, at some point, if he can't break this trend, it's like the talent's there, but you're just going to have to see him keep falling down this list because he can't be impactful in the limited windows. I know last year finally seemed like it was going to happen. Um, he had a strong first half of the season, a healthy first half of the season. He was an all-star. 
Um, you get into August, you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. He's not, he's not broken yet. And then by the end of August, he was broken. Um, and so it's just like, all right, here we go again. And it's, it's been since he was a young player just breaking into the league that he hasn't been hurt, at least for some sort of a stint during the season. Um, for him, I think it, he might be someone who this year might be the year that I would be dropping him a little bit lower just because it never seems like he can break it. For sure. And again, um, just to give Mandy some credit there, uh, where the other, because this one has already aired, so... Vince Gennaro had him at four, and uh, Mike Petriello had him at six, and I'm um, looking at the other lists as we talk. BK, Brian Kenny had him at seven. Um, so I think that is the realistic side, and I will always go <laughs> the uber-optimistic side for baseball, and I know maybe it doesn't. No, you don't say. But yeah, I mean, he is an outstanding talent and we'll see. But regardless, I mean, it's just so exciting to have guys like Julio and Michael Harris II on this list. And we were going to talk about left field. I know I talked about that. But since that's airing later today and I want us to give it its full due, why don't we save that for next week? Okay, perfect. Yeah, no spoilers here. If you want to see the list, you got to tune in. We're not doing any spoilers, no. Exactly. Yeah, so let's take a quick break right now. Um, when we come back, we sort of mixed looking at last year and thinking of what could happen this year in these lists. Let's just get into full-on projections for next year um, when we come back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com, and Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter for MLB.com, as well as I try to catch my breath here from taking a quick pit stop to get my groceries off the front porch and try to not waste as much time. Okay. And breathe. Good. 2023 projections, which 2023 still doesn't even sound right to me. I don't, I can't believe we're in the 2023 season. Uh, I know you had tweeted some of these out today and I was intrigued by some of them. So I'll just let you go through what you have tweeted out so far, um, since obviously that's your own work. Well, I didn't really do anything here except type up what's already on Fangraphs, but Fangraphs has a few different projection systems. So I love Zips, which comes from Dan Zimporsky but those aren't all fully out there yet. But there's another projection system called Steamer, and those are all out there. So I was just kind of going through and looking at who the leaders might be. So if we look at the player who is projected for the most war as a hitter in 2023, it's Juan Soto, 
at 7.1, just ahead of Aaron Judge at 6.9. And if you look at their stats to try to ascertain what the difference might be, Soto is projected for a 172 weight of runs created plus. That means he is projected to be 72% better than league average at the plate. Judge has a 163 WRC plus. That's 63% better. Both are outstanding. Judge is projected to slug a bit more than Soto. But Soto is projected to walk more and strike out less. Very similar, uh, of course, but it is Soto ahead of Judge. But if you consider all of war, so not just as a batter, but overall, it's Shohei Otani who is projected to lead the way at 7.5 because he is projected for 3.1 war as a hitter and 4.4 as a pitcher. It'll never get old hearing what Shohei Otani can do. And I mean, it, he's just an enigma and it's it's so fun to even be able to watch someone who can do what he does. So not surprising when you're able to collect as much war as you as he's can do on both sides of the ball. Not surprising that he's projected to lead because why wouldn't he if he's able to do all of that? Um, the biggest thing for me is after the year Juan Soto had... And I know how great he is. I, I'm, I'm best friends with you. I know how great Juan Soto is. I think anyone who knows Sarah knows how great Juan Soto is. But to have the tremendous amount of optimism in these projections of him bouncing back from last year, um, and you have him over top of Aaron Judge, who's coming off one of the best years in baseball that we've seen, um, I thought that was cool. Uh, I thought that was a little bit of a, uh, a mix up. It's not as, as obvious as just going down from last year and seeing who the best guys were. And I obviously know that that's what all these calculations do, but, um, I don't know if I'm buying into it right now because I, I want to see Soto bounce back and see him, uh, right the ship a little bit before I buy into the fact that he could be if we take out Otani's pitching war, he would be the leader as a hitter in war. Um, but I like to see that the optimism is still there for one of the best players in the game that we've seen and see him be that again after having a little bit of a struggle last year. For sure. And if you look at the underlying stats, his struggle year was still pretty good. There were only, I believe, four hitters who hit the ball harder on a per-swing basis than Juan Soto last season. And if you look at my favorite, the OPS Plus through age season, for him right now, we're at through age 23 season. And he's like sixth on the list, and everyone ahead of him is in the Hall of Fame, or is Mike Trout or Albert Pools, who will be in the Hall of Fame. So I completely hear it that his year was not Mm -hmm. what we're used to with him. But I also see why he has built so many years of data showing how good he is. That if you plug this into a projection system, I see why it sees him being really good again. Now, Judge is projected to be the second best player. 
by a full win above replacement, but then after that, you have Julio Rodriguez and Mookie Betts tied at third at 5.9, and then you have Adley Rushman and Mike Trout tied at fifth. And I mean, if there is anything to make you excited for this season, how about the fact that Juan Soto, Julio Rodriguez, and Adley Rutschman are all under the age of 25. It's ridiculous. And they're all projected to be among the top six players in baseball with three guys who at least two of them are probably had to the Hall of Fame, maybe all three, you know. So certainly Mike Trout. I think Mookie Betts is on a Hall of Fame track, and if Aaron Judge keeps doing what he's doing, he would be as well. Either way, those are three guys who have been hallmarks of the last five to seven years. And then you have guys who are going to be the hallmarks moving forward. Yeah. And I know that you also had um, projections for home runs as well, not just for war. So I can let you list out what Steamer had projected for those. Sure. So Judge is projected to lead at 44. And I will say... No projection system is ever going to say, hey, this guy's going to hit 62 home runs again. <laughs> so Yankees fans should not be upset. Projection systems rarely say that a guy is going to hit many more than 45 home runs. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Just has to do with the odds of it. So he's projected to lead at 44. Then in tie for second, we have Mike Trout. Vlad Jr. and Pete Alonso each with 39, and then Kyle Schwarber at 38. All of that seems like it, in reality, checks out. I feel like those are going to be the guys. We saw Mike Trout hit an insane number of homers in a short frame last year, so um, 40 seems more than doable. I know he's at 39, but that 40 range is more than doable for him. But I wrote on our little notes saying, I exactly word for word was LOL. Why does 44 homers seem disappointing now? When you see a projection of 44 homers, it's like, man, this guy's going to have a good year. He's going to be at 44 homers. That would be awesome. That would be fun to watch. And after we got so spoiled last year, it seems like, uh, and like you said, it's never going to say someone's going to hit 55, 65, whatever number of home runs. That's just not going to be the case. So it's not like this is a crystal ball telling you exactly the number that's going to be. But just to hear the number 44, it's like, hmm, lame year. And that's just so stupid that that's now how we're wired after he spoiled us last year. It's, it's not going to be done in back-to-back years. I feel confident in saying it. I hope that we can loop back to this in October and be like, you said it wouldn't happen and it happened again. Please let that be the case. That would be so much fun. I agree 100%. And I hope we end up on freezing cold takes. With, <laughs> oh my gosh. You didn't believe in Aaron Judge. You didn't believe that Pete Alonzo would hit 60. We'll see what happens. But either way, it's a great point that just our entire frame of reference changes when the guy has a season like that. So we can look at war for pitchers and see who's projected there. So Jacob DeGrom is projected to lead in pitching war at 5.5. And then Corbin Burns is next at 4.9. 
followed by Carlos Rodon at 4.5, and then we have Garrett Cole and Shohei Otani tied to 4.4. I love this because I'll give a little preview of my top 10 list for starting pitcher, though that one isn't for a while. I was, as we say, the high man on Shohei Otani as a pitcher. I think he's going to be one of the certainly top 10 pitchers in baseball this year, but probably much higher. So very exciting to see him tied for fourth on this list. Yeah, and uh, I think that, again, going into every single year, I'm excited to see what Otani can do and if he can get higher. Um, and if he can get better and figure out how to perfect both things, because if he, he has, he's perfected both things, but to get even better, to be among the elite, to be among the league leaders and all of that, I think every single year I'm ready for an enormous Otani season. I know you also had most projected strikeouts was something that you had listed, um, with Garrett Cole leading the way of that with 249 projected strikeouts. And we go down the list. Corbin Burns at 239, Jacob deGrom at 236, Carlos, Carlos Rodon at 234, and Max Scherzer at 230. And I know you have a couple of nuggets about those possibilities as well. I did. So the first thing that jumps out, just looking at that top five for me, is the fact that we have two Yankee pitchers on here. We have Garrett Cole at 249 and Carlos Rodon, as you said, at 234. So it'd be two Yankee starting pitchers with 230 plus strikeouts. So there have only been 15 teams since 1900 to have multiple pitchers strike out at least 230 guys in a season. The Yankees have never had two guys do that. And Garrett Cole has been part of two of those 15 on the list with Justin Verlander in 2018 and 2019 with the Astros. But uh, the last teams to do this were in 2019. The Nationals actually had three guys do this with Patrick Corbin, Max Scherzer, and Steven Strasburg. And then the Astros, by the way, those two teams, of course, met in that World Series. The Astros had uh, Cole and Verlander. But we've seen this happen a couple times in the 2010s couple times since 2000 and everything else is really in that 60s, 70s, 80s era. So be pretty cool to see the Yankees do something they've never done before. I love, I love great pitching. I love watching great pitching. It's, it's whenever you, I'm all about the pitchers duel over the home run derby type of deal. So to be able to imagine three guys like Corbin Scherzer and Strasburg doing that in 2019 Three guys with more than 230 strikeouts in a season. Oh my gosh, how spoiled were those reporters to watch that every day. I'm so jealous. That would be so cool. Um, My take on this, let me Cleveland this up a little bit because obviously that's the one area that I, I, I do know. I'm curious about Shane Bieber. And I know he wasn't close to this mark last year. Um, I'm I'm wondering if he can get the velocity back that he lost uh, if he could somehow get back into this realm. Because the last two two seasons, his velocity has dipped. In 2021, he had right shoulder problems that caused him to miss most of the season. 
his velocity was way low that year. And obviously we can all point towards the fact that he ended up having to leave the season because of his shoulder. Um, this year it was averaging, let's just use round numbers around 91 miles an hour. We're used to seeing him around 93 in a shortened 2020 season. He was at 94, but that's just such a small window that I don't like to relate to that. So if we're used to seeing him at 93 back in 2019 in a year where he had 259 strikeouts, um, I'm wondering if another year out of this shoulder problem, if he can get any velocity back. Now, last year he figured out how to get outs without his velocity. He was still insanely effective and was their ace without a doubt. And um, was a workhorse as he always is, but his strikeouts were much lower. And I think he just figured out how to get outs in other ways. And I'm curious if another year out of this, if his name will be added into it because he was able to get his velocity to tick back up just a smidge enough to throw off hitters again, um, create a little bit more, um, separation with his breaking pitches, whatever it might be. Um, I'm, I'm curious if he could be someone who gets thrown into this group that's not currently projected to be that high. I would certainly love to see it. I mean, when he was in that Cy Young form and he would come out and we had all of those stats back in 2020, most strikeouts through first starts of his season, so most strikeouts in first start, all of that. That was really fun. Not to say that learning to pitch without strikeout stuff isn't also impressive. It very much is. But I love to watch a strikeout. I love the artistry of that. And it'd be really fun to see him get back into that. We know he still has the stuff on the breaking side. So I think if he's able to get that velocity back, Mm-hmm. That he could absolutely be back to being, you know, in this Jacob deGrom sort of uh, hemisphere, atmosphere, whatever you want to say, stratosphere. That's the, that's the sphere I meant. But that's anyway, the sphere. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the sphere is the baseball, really. I mean, it's the <laughs> sphere that they're throwing. But anyway, I think... He absolutely has the ability to get back there. I mean, I think it comes down to whether last year was even a purposeful let's continue to take something off while you're kind of recovering. Things that we'll never know exactly, and I'm just speculating, but we've seen pitchers do things like that. I think he's just ready to be done getting asked about his velocity. So if he went up a tick or two, he will be so pleased because he is tired of being asked about it. He's answered a thousand times. I I don't know. Okay. We think that they know more than what they let on. They never want to reveal everything because what's the point of that? Your competition hears all of it. But um, I think he would just be very relieved to not have to answer that again. But um, we'll take a quick break right now. We'll throw to our favorite things in baseball. When we get back and we'll, we'll keep those short and sweet. And then we'll be out of here for our first podcast back since the holidays, which has been fun. So stay with us. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. 
With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast with me, Mandy Bell, Guardians beat reporter for MLB.com and Sarah Langs, researcher and reporter as well for MLB.com. Sarah, why don't you start us off with your favorite thing in baseball, despite it being the offseason from the past week? There are always favorite things, by the way. I will take this moment to plug that the Legion final series is going on right now. <laughs> Game four is tonight. Lisa is up to one. That's not my favorite thing, but just to show there's always baseball going on, you can watch 6.30 p.m. Eastern on MLB.tv. Now, my moment is actually something that Gabe Kapler, the Giants manager, did on Instagram. So, the Giants earlier this offseason signed Mitch Hanniger. Uh, You know, I know that fans were thinking they might get another uh, Bay Area-born outfielder, maybe to pair with him. But at the very least, they got Mitch Hanniger, who's a really good player. He appeared on some people's top 10 lists. And Gabe Kapler, who is certainly one of the, I don't know, would you say he's one of the more progressive managers? I don't mean politically. I would just say he interacts with social media more than most MLB managers. I think that's fair. I know he's often out there tweeting, posting stuff on Instagram. So he posted on Instagram the other day, a couple days ago, a screenshot of a DM. And it said, appreciate this note from, and it's a handle. So he's tagging the handle. So Gabe Kapler had shared a story, a photo from the San Francisco Giants. And this random fan responded to him and said, you will love Mitch Handiger. Not only is he a baller, but his work ethic and his dedication will wow you. And Kapler responds to this random fan and says, <laughs> cool message, how do you know? And the guy goes, because I'm a Mariners fan, I'm very sad to see him leave. And then Kapler says, respect. As I said, there are not a lot of managers or players in Major League Baseball who would not only respond to this guy, but responding to him must have made his day, his week, his year. The fact that Gabe Kapler responded to this random DM about this player, but then for Kapler to screenshot and put it on his story so everyone sees it. So it's not just about the fact that he answered you. But it's about the fact that the manager of the San Francisco Giants decided that this message from this random fan should be seen by anyone who follows him. And he tagged Mitch Hanniger as well. I just thought, you know, you were talking earlier about how social media can be awful, but there are moments when it's great. This is a moment when it's really great. And I just thought this was such a cool move by Gabe Kapler. Not just to answer the fan, but to share this and to show everyone that he's interacting with fans and that he's doing something like this. 
opening the lines of communication between fans and players or managers, whatever it might be, is the best part of social media. And so I love that he posted that so that we could see that that's there. Um, mine's, mine's a little different, but it is... I've, just because I, I see it so frequently, I hate to always have to go down the Cleveland route with these types of, of moments, but the fact that there's a lot of Cleveland staff right now and Bally Sports is down there to do some stuff in the Dominican Republic, um, they are collecting video and moments and different things like that to allow fans to see Jose Ramirez, Ahmed Rosario, Oscar Gonzalez. Like they're seeing a whole bunch of different guys down there. Um, they're doing a bunch of different work. We got to see, I've seen tweets about Oscar Gonzalez being on the field that he played on growing up. Um, Jose Ramirez had videos with his little girl. Oh my goodness. Um, when she's covering her face from the camera when Jose's holding her. And I saw people tweeting about how they're twins. I think it's adorable. She looks just like her dad. Um, there's been moments of, of all of this. Ahmed Rosario with his animals and talking about how he would be a vet if he wasn't a baseball player because he loves animals. Uh-huh. It's fun to see the personal side of these guys. And so I love all the work that they're doing. But my favorite part that I've seen so far... If you guys remember, Oscar Gonzalez was SpongeBob SquarePants this year because of his theme song, uh, the theme song from that when he would do his walk-up music, um, became a huge thing in the postseason, obviously more of a national stage. Everyone was talking about SpongeBob. He has a sign in his house that the first thing you see when you walk in there is a SpongeBob type of painting. And in Spanish, I think it was, it reads that, welcome to Bikini Bottom, SpongeBob. And I think that is so incredible. And I think I should probably out myself a little bit to explain why I think it's so incredible. I was SpongeBob's biggest fan growing up, I promise you. (laughs) My entire bedroom was SpongeBob. The pillows, the sheets, the comforter, the SpongeBob beanbag chairs, the SpongeBob stickers on the wall. I had a SpongeBob phone. I had it all, man. Like. The phone probably didn't even work. I'm starting to think back to that. It was like a landline throwback to when we had landlines. Um, I don't even think it worked. But I had SpongeBob everything. I had a life-size SpongeBob that was as big, not like life-size of what a a sea sponge would be, like my size. Um, So, yes. SpongeBob hits home to me. I've never been happier than when I was able to use Patchy the Pirate in a lead this year. So thank you, Oscar, for granting me that. But... I thought that was hilarious that he had that sign in his and ba- in, in the in his house. I saw that. It's so good. And I love that it's in Spanish. Like it's really his, you know, it's not I know. It's not that this has been pushed on to him or anything like that. This is truly his. Another thing that I love, you referred to it. Well with all of this content, if you love dogs, go to the Guardian's Twitter. You made reference to Rosario and his animals. There's one photo of his dog named Blue where he is staring into the camera like, help me, why am I here? (laughs) I promise the dog is fine, but you know that look. So uh, really fun content. 
I've seen bits and pieces of what they've been tweeting out. It's really, really cool. So highly recommend. Proof that baseball can still be fun in the off season. I think that'll do it for this week's podcast. We're glad to be back. And now don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying this show or you have any suggestions for us at all, please leave us a rating and a review. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we'll see you next week.